I will say I've compared notes with other journalists before, and there are some people who it's like a shade goes up at the beginning of the interview and then the shade goes down again at the end of the interview. It's like, and I think that that makes a lot of sense because if everybody, if you're famous and everyone wants a piece of you, I mean, that seems like a pretty understandable survival tactic also. So, but like, you know, um, it really depends on the person. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 18. I'm Jamie Berger. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately and probably have said it on here, too, that this this isn't really so much a podcast about fame as a, a podcast where fame is a jumping off point to discuss whatever comes up, but to talk to people about what they do and how they do it and why they do it within the frame of the fact that we live in this world where everyone has, everyone is expected to have some sort of a public persona. Thus, fame. One of my touchstones for this podcast is Studs Terkel's 1974 book, Working, which is a compendium of interviews Turkle did with people just talking about their jobs, just all over America. And recently, uh, recordings have started to be released, and radiodiaries.org is playing some of those old Turkle recordings and then is going and finding some of the people from the book and talking to them again now, whatever years later, 42 years later. Uh, so check it out. It's really great. Radiodiaries.org. And the series within the podcast is called Working Then and Now. My guest today is Anjali Milani, uh, an old grad school friend and the editor of Fast Company, the, the business magazine uh, of their digital side. And we talked about fame and how to talk to famous people and journalism and the viral quote she got from Ivanka Trump a few weeks ago and maybe a little bit about vaginal steaming. But you'll have to listen to the whole episode to see where we how we make it to that. Um... And that's it. Oh, and a little P.S. I wanted to get this episode out there because it's relevant to our current election season. And one week from yesterday, the election will be over with. Thank fucking God. Anjali and I spoke on the phone last week. Hi, 
Jamie. Hi, Anjali. How are you? How's it going? It's going well. Hectic. Hectic here yeah. because of uh, Anya's photo project that has kind of blown up in the last few days, and I'm being impromptu manager and publicist. It's a huge deal, though. It's everywhere. It is. Apparently, it's going to be on Upworthy. Wow. That's massive. They get so much traffic. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But she's just thrilled. But she's she's also uh, mortified by having to deal with press and attention besides responding to individual people who are moved by the, the work. So I'm trying to help her with that. Well, first of all, it's incredible that happened. But yeah, I mean, once something becomes that big on the Internet, it's sort of you lose control of it, don't you? Yeah, and it isn't just some people, when she writes on Facebook, help, I'm freaking out, think it's about trolls, which there are a few, but very, very few. But it's more even the positive. Even the positive is is very, very stressful. And so I'm trying to keep her on because she's shooting every night from now till Election Day and, and two days in New York next weekend. So she's pretty much working nine to five at her job, shooting six to ten, coming home and editing and posting photos. And then going to sleep and getting up and doing it again from now till November 8th. So I'm trying to do what I can. But what I wanted to do, because I haven't really uh, done my homework this week, because I've been helping Anya, is can you give me the mini version of how you went from when we knew each other in 2000, what, six, seven, eight, mm-hmm. to where you are now? After after we did our MFAs, I did a master's at NYU in journalism and I was very lucky because um program I went to was a rather experimental journalism program it was also a brand new program because I had so little journalism experience before I went into this program compared to my peers who also happened to be younger than me sometimes much younger than me and but I think that they I think that they um accepted me into that program at NYU. It's called Studio 20. It still exists because I had a different background. And I think they were looking for people with different perspectives. So obviously, like, you know, my background had been in creative writing. And so that program was very helpful for me because, you know, I had professors who would literally go and take me and introduce me to people who worked at big media organizations and helped me get my first job and everything. And so yeah, so th- that's basically what happened. Yeah. Was the Daily News your first job? Yes. I had a funny thing happen too, which was that when when we were in 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 Amherst, I was not very active on social media, and I wasn't a you know a great blogger or anything like that. I sort of lurked on those things, but I didn't really use them. And I'm pretty sure at that point I no longer had a Facebook. I just wasn't that interested. And then um, when I went to the summer before I went to journalism school, you know, all of that protest around um, the Iranian election had taken place. And I was really amazed as someone who had always sort of, you know, both really like loved the media, but also sort of resented how the media didn't seem to listen to what the masses wanted. Also, I um, I was really amazed how, you know, the Iranian people had used all this I'd use the internet to kind of draw attention to what was happening in their world. I thought that was amazing, and it caught the attention of the mainstream media all around the world. 
So I, that was what was sort of what was happening as I was headed into graduate school. The other thing that was happening is that the iPhone was becoming a thing. I mean, the iPhone, I think, was at that point perhaps a year or two old, and most of most people I knew still didn't have a smartphone. And so I didn't have a smartphone going into grad school. I got one that first semester. and But you know, as I was going in, it was also the aftermath of the recession, and the journalism industry was really taking a hit, and a lot of people had been losing their jobs. And so... You know, I had gone into journalism thinking this is a more practical decision than, you know, like to get a job than, you know, being a poet. And and when I got into journalism school and everyone was like, you're crazy to think that this is like a good way to get a job. So I I just had like a lot of worry because, like I I told you earlier, a lot of people had more experience than me. They had written, you know, I had peers in my program who had written for the Times of London and, you know, People magazine. And one person had had his own television show, I believe, in Colorado. And here I was with my, you know, hand-sewn chapbooks from the Berkshires and not much else, you know. And so just thought, what am I going to do? And we had a writing class, um, you know, basic writing and reporting class. And the first few assignments I did, it did really poorly because I thought I was such a great writer, but I actually didn't know some of the basic structure of, 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 you know, AP style journalism. And so, and so I had to learn a lot very quickly, which it was, that was fine, but I knew I was behind and that I had to, I I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to easily catch up in terms of clips compared to my peers. If if I was ever going to come out of this program and get a job and the goal for me now had really been, you know, to become a journalist. And so I had my one of my professors was really into social media, and most of these news organizations weren't using it much at the time. So I thought, okay, here's something I could do that, you know, I could think about journalistically, like, you know, it could help solve a problem for these places that haven't solved this problem yet or approached this problem yet. And so I really studied very hard under him to come up with good ideas about how newsrooms could use all of that technology. And so I really accidentally stumbled into doing all the social media for the daily news. I, I pitched it. I basically wrote to the editor and said, "You're not. I see you're not doing much with this. Would you like someone to do it?" And they immediately let me do it, and like pretty unsupervised. And so it was a big opportunity for me. And that led, while I was there, to all sorts of opportunities. I got to work a lot on how breaking, you know, kind of come up with how breaking news happened on the site. And I got to do quite a bit of reporting myself. And I had a couple you know, got to contribute to a few cover stories and I got learned how to edit and I had a really good bosses who let me kind of do whatever, try whatever I wanted to try. And were you, were you already working there then, or did you just pitch them a job? I pitched them a job basically. And for the first few months I didn't, well, for the first few months I, you know, I mean, I wasn't paid the first few months, so it was quite difficult because I was also full-time in school and, you know, trying to live in New York, but like, um, but it paid off, and I'm very lucky, and not everyone is able to make that hat work, so I'm lucky that I was even able to do that. And um, But luckily, like, at the end of it, they rewarded, after a few months, they rewarded me with a job, so then I was in school and working there at the same time, which was challenging, but I also, I mean, that had been the goal, was to get the job, so... Um, and um, And my program was really supportive of it, so... That's what, so then I was there for a few years, and then I came to Fast Company, and I came here first to do the audience stuff, but then I became, I started a little newsroom here, which was really fun, and then um, after running the news for a bit, I 
um, took over the site. So, and same same deal here. I've just been able to try a lot of different things and learn how to write features and written some features and. Um, you know, just been. It's nice to sometimes be in smaller places because you can learn more. That's a great, you know, way that all fell together. Are you working in Midtown now? No, we are in Seven World Trade. Ah, yeah, on the twenty ninth floor, I gather. Yes. <laughs> from from a video I just yeah, watched. Yeah, that's right. Uh, hashtag twenty ninth floor. That's funny. So I, you know, I thought about talking to you from from when I started this, but. When I saw your post about the Ivanka piece and the idea of a scoop for something that you didn't think was the most vital part of what you know of what you'd done, uh, what what went down with that? And was it you know was it a big deal that that you were the person who got her to? You know, I'm going to just I'm going to read the quote that I think got everybody's attention, uh, which is. Uh, my father's comments were clearly inappropriate and offensive, and I'm glad that he acknowledged this fact with an immediate apology to my family and the American people, Ivanka told Fast Company in a statement. We can argue about whether he gave much of an apology to the American people. But so is that what, what jumped off? Yeah, and I mean, I'm not, I, don't, I don't underestimate how important it is that she addressed those tapes. Um, you know, I... I think you know it was very clear to all of us that if we, if she gave us that statement, this would travel far, like it would get written about a lot. So that wasn't a surprise. It's just, and I don't I don't particularly think that you know that was a less important part of what was included in the story. It's just always really remarkable to me. And the longer that you do this, just the easier every time it gets to know what that thing will be. It's just remarkable to me sometimes what does go viral because um that that's basically a that's basically a one sentence press release. You know, and there's so many journalists who do such amazing <laughs> enterprising work, you know, that it, in some ways it's probably more consequential and um and it doesn't go viral. And so I mean, it's just it's something I think about a lot. I wonder does do we in the media create virality? Well, not necessarily, because there are many things we try to make them be read by many people, and they're not, despite our best efforts and packaging and headlining. And But, also, you know, it's really people vote with their readers and audiences. They vote with their clicks and their views, right? There's a reason, I assume, why CNN... Is, has done the type of political coverage they've done this year, you know, with the surrogates and the wall-to-wall, only Trump, only politics coverage this year, for the most part, it seems. And so and there's a reason, right, because of ratings. I mean, that, I don't work there, but I assume that. And and then on the other hand, and again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing that we ran her statement. I think it's very important that if we mention this topic that she gets a chance to respond to it. You know, it's... Um, it's just, it's just, it's less frustrated and more. It's just even though I know to expect it, it always sort of amazes me, because it's, it's in some small way manufactured news, right? Because because it's not it's not um, because you know it came through it came through her. I went through her publicist to get that 
statement from her. It came back through a publicist. You know what I mean? And so it's just more like sort of constant amazement. And I think one thing that's been really fascinating for me being in the media the past seven years or so is that a lot of the things that I believed about the media are true, just not quite the way I thought they were true. I mean, you know, just um, when I worked at the Daily News, we had all these celebrity photo galleries, or they would cover, you know, celebrities a lot. But I can guarantee you that most people, like a, a lot of people I worked with didn't really care about that stuff, but they would, but it would do so well, and it would pay for that, the, the traffic on those stories would pay for a story about, you know, the Chinatown bid that only 2,000 people were going to read. And so, you know, I think the media it plays into these things in part because, it's like a survival tactic, but it doesn't necessarily change the outcome, which is that certain topics get disproportionately covered and topics that, you know, arguably are more important or more in the public interest get covered less. But it's essentially a business model problem, right? Because our business model hasn't really changed since we've taken the newspaper model of advertising and transferred it to the web, and it's not particularly like the most like scalable and lucrative model and all sorts of you know outlets are trying trying all sorts of things with various degrees of success from events to be basically becoming branded content agencies to all sorts of things to help you know bolster the business of news but um you know ultimately for the most part it's still a page view game at most places and so that sort of dictates some of the content that gets created and also dictates what gets gets read, you know? And um, and part of it is because that's what the audience wants to read or what they vote for every time they click or share something. It's complicated, you know? That, that brings up something I wanted to ask you about, which on Facebook you made it really clear when I said I had a podcast about fame. You wrote, ha-ha, I am not a famous journalist, just to be 100% clear. <laughs> I'm yeah. not. I'm clear, not, no. got it. Um, but the question that interests me is, is journalists relationship. You, you mentioned that, you know, relationship to the famous, to subjects, but to fame themselves. And it seems kind of to me that there are of the most ambitious journalists. There are those who want to become public figures like, uh, I don't know. And then there, there are people like I'm thinking of a, a friend of mine from high school, Eric Wemple, who's with the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. He's great. Who is about getting the story is, is his, his idea of success, it seems to me. Uh, and and uh, what just made me think about the idea of thinking of your, of your Ivanka experience of, of the scoop as fame for, for the least the most for the journalists who are less ego fixated and more story fixated the, the idea of getting that scoop oh there's there's a, there is a little bit of egotism in it yeah i mean it's, there's some ambition tied to it and you know that if you know that if you finish an interview and the person in the interview said something new that they never said before or if you know that you um go through a trove of documents and you uncover something nobody noticed in them before you know you know that that's a scoop and it's exciting it's like a it's like you're on the metal the beach with your metal detector and you're looking for that little piece of real gold because that's part of your job is to is to tell people things they didn't know before but i think and so it is always exciting when that happens and i think that 
if 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 she hadn't given us that statement, I think the story would have been a little less read. And what I tried really hard in that story, and I think, you know, what kind of a gift of the MFA program is that it's kind of made me this kind of journalist. Is you know, I tried really hard to understand her in that story with 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 what little. You know, I don't know her. I don't live with her. I don't didn't spend days with her. And but the you know like the fascinating beyond the scoop, which you know if, if that was even a scoop, you know. But like you put a lot of, especially when you write a feature or do a profile of any kind, you put so much time into that person, understanding that person. I read her book. I watched every single interview with her I could find since she was really young. You know, I like you know read everything I could read about her family and her dad and her mom and you know like went back so far in all of their social media timelines and like would you know like be eating dinner and thinking about her business. And so you just you spend so much time meditating on them that you know at the end of it if you put all this effort into something for that long you do want people to read it, and then also, if, you know, you're fearful because you want to make sure they actually, you actually successfully transmitted what you wanted to transmit in the story. And, um, but you know, I mean, anything you write, that's not true. A lot of what you write, you are sort of personally invested in it. You've given your time into this thing, and you want it to succeed. And you know, writers do. I edit a lot of writers, and I edit a lot of features. And you know, it is kind of you know, writers are happy when they see that their stories have gotten a lot of reads, and they are they are down when they when they put months into something and hardly any. Despite our best efforts, we pitch it everywhere, and we put it on social media, and we put it on the homepage, and you know, we try it put it in our newsletters. We try everything we can think of to get people to read their story, and sometimes it doesn't happen, and it's super disappointing for them because it could be an awesome story, and and um you know, for whatever reason. So I think people do care about that, but I don't know if it's always just because they want to be famous. I think it's also because it's like cooking, a, spending all afternoon baking a cake and then it collapses at the end. I think they feel a little bit like that sometimes, you know, and they didn't really get to eat it, you know. <laughs> so I don't know if that's the perfect analogy, but you know what I mean. No, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm and I'm experiencing it a lot with, with these, uh, these episodes I put together in that yeah, it's, I have to stay focused on how much fun I have making them and how I just want them to be good. And because, oh my goodness, it's hard to let get things to latch on. I'm I'm trying to win a Twitter and, ha, <laughs> oh my goodness. Isn't Twitter funny? I mean, I mean, it's just the funniest thing. What is the society? It's like, how many followers do you have? And how many people do you follow? It's like language that you and I didn't speak when we were in high school. So, one thing you were talking about writing features and about you know working with people like Ivanka Trump. Something that also interests me is that uh, I heard, I hear or read Ira Glass talking about how he doesn't interview or he doesn't like to do stuff with famous people because he he doesn't know how to talk to them, and I think it's basically because he's kind of. A pretty super wise ass, <laughs> and I just wonder is, is how do you, do you enjoy that kind of work, and is it is it a special skill? Do you think? I mean, we're going to get to you and your 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 <laughs> your uh, your. Uh, we'll get to it, Gwyneth. A little note you wrote me about you and Gwyneth, and then 
a bone you might have to pick with her that you can you can put on here or not. Oh no, yes. I don't have a bone with her, but like I I mean I first of all would never compare myself to Ira Glass. Mm-hmm. I mean Well, I'm comparing you to so, him. I so I mean I would say I have not talked to a million famous people, but I have done some stories on famous people or people who are fi- famous in their industry. And I think that a couple of things. I think one, it depends on the person. Also, you must remember that mostly I'm a business journalist, so I'm not coming into it to talk about their divorce. But if they're, you know, but there are times where someone's personal life actually does, is relevant to the story. So I have a very strong sort of per, personal rule that I don't, I don't invade people's privacy unless it feels like it's really in the interest of the public or or they've introduced it somehow into the narrative of what they're working on or what they're doing. Um, if, unless there's like actually like a really justifiable reason for it, I really think people should be allowed to have their lives. And, um, and I'm actually working on a story with someone right now where this is a very important question for us about whether or not we're going to include something or not. We have long conversations about whether it's on one hand, this absolutely did affect their business on, in a really measurable way. In another way, we're not sure. We're still not. It is very complicated, and so, so we're still working that out. And we, like, I take it seriously. But like, for example, you know, some celebrities are really easy to talk to, and some are more careful and media trained. And often, there's a really good reason for that, which is that they, you know, the media has been like really abusive to them. And so, you know, for you know, for whatever reason. And so um, I just think, you know, you have to, it's no, it's just just like you have to be emotionally intelligent when you talk to anybody in, in real life, you know, and kind of take cues from them about what in this conversation is working and not working, <laughs> you know. It's kind of the same thing. And it's just that often you don't have like a ton of, you don't have like three hours with the person. So you just have to sort of, constantly be trying to find your way in it or and also you know establish really early on that you are a fair person who respects their humanity when you're talking to them you know it's like it's definitely like a balancing act and um it just depends it depends on so many things i will say i've compared notes with other journalists before and there are some people who it's like a shade goes up at the beginning of the interview and then the shade goes down again at the end of the interview. It's like, and I think that that makes a lot of sense because if everybody, if you're famous and everyone wants a piece of you, I mean, that seems like a pretty understandable survival tactic also. So, but like, you know, um, it really depends on the person. Well, what I like about doing this is, and remember, I, I was like, I'm not looking for for you as a famous person, I'm not looking for, for gossip and whatever anybody talks about. If anything, I've been overprotective of, of one or two people who we, we did had our conversation over a few drinks and they started, uh, talking some stuff. Oh yes. You have to be careful about that. And, and with this though, it's, it's, I am only here. I'm only drinking seltzer water right now. Yeah. Well, I, I, I would, I would cut anything you wanted. And if it were too much, I just wouldn't have an episode. It's it's really that simple. If somebody were like, I hate the whole thing, we just won't do it. But if somebody was like, I don't like what I said about Mel Gibson, then it won't be there. So that said, 
in, I think, the second or third episode was just my friend Tim from back in San Francisco. And he is just a very charismatic guy. And I, I always thought he had a certain star quality and he used to do some acting. But he, he worked at the public library and he's an arborist, a tree trimmer. Isn't it funny how some people do have star quality? Yeah. Some people just emanate. Yeah. And, well, Tim had two things he wanted to talk about. Uh, one was, and the one that was most important to him, was that he, his um, claim to fame, or to use your words, he is the unsung hero, or so he claimed, to bringing uh, punk rock and skateboarding together back in the early 80s. Wow. That is a kind of a big deal. He was friends with Tony Alva and Tony Hawk and a bunch of these guys, and Tony Hawk was a younger guy. They lived in the in the valley, and and uh, you know they skated together. And Tim didn't compete like them; he was just part of a group. Uh, and they were all into Ted Nugent and stuff, and and you know metal. And he took them to their first class show. And after that, the style changed, and uh, you know, so he he claims that, and that was really great to hear from him about. Wow, is he going to be in a history? I mean, is he in history books? I mean, he must. Has, he's certainly in. I mean, uh, is he on Biography.com? I mean, this is amazing. I don't think he. Yeah, I think you know he. He doesn't get credit for it. You know, he does on a few. You know, I, I found a few little you know bulletin board web skate history stuff, but you know, it just these are these things that seem like they just happened at a certain time. Uh, but Tim wanted to claim credit for that, and it, it's very interesting. He also talks about the other major topic was that he for several years was the. Uh, uh, tree trimmer for for Sharon Stone and Phil Bronstein, and 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 was friendly with them and had some great stories about that. But it's the skateboarding thing that I wanted to talk to you about. And then again, if you don't, if you didn't really want to talk about this, but I don't know, but I don't know how to skateboard. No, no, I. This leads me to that you wrote to me that you. So what that was was basically, I have been a big big reader of the Gwyneth Paltrow newsletter since I was at UMass. I remember when it started, I signed up for it, and I had been getting it since the beginning. And so that was part of the reason I wanted to write a story about her, about Gwyneth Paltrow and her businesses. I had been following it for years and just sort of noticed things they had done that actually in retrospect were kind of early. And so I think a year or two before I wrote that, I wrote a cover about Gwyneth Paltrow for the magazine last year. And about a year or two before that, I was reading the Goop newsletter, and it clicked through to her website where there were buy-the-city listings for the best spas. I am not a particularly big spa person. Um, I don't really go to spas, but I sort of was idly looking through all the listings on this Goop website because some of them had really far-out procedures on them. And one of the spas, and again, I'll check this for you, but one of the spas had listed something called, I want to say it was called like ultraviolet uterine steaming. And I was like, what is that? And so it's like, that sounds really aggressive or something. So I remember passing it on to another editor here and saying, hey, I just read about this in the Goop, like on the Goop website. And I think we should do it like a, we should find out if this is a widespread procedure and find out what it is. What is ultraviolet uterine steaming? Um, I think that's what it's called, Jamie. And then 
And then we should actually write like a business story about like how do you actually market something like that to women if it is, if it is a popular thing, and how do you get them to do it? It doesn't sound like something I don't even wasn't really sure what it was, and it didn't sound like something I would do. So it was really interesting. And so she assigned it to another writer, and they did quite a different story. They did like a first person story, like pardon my French, like about vaginal steaming, and it was pretty snarky. I remember reading it and thinking, this is not a business story, but it was, but that story did really, I mean, a lot of people read that story and shared that story. And, um, and then I think from that, I think that the whole Gordon Paltrow vaginal steaming, like, sort of brouhaha, I think it sprung from that piece. I don't think, and again, you have to check, but I don't think before that spa listing that Goop ever actually did a piece on vaginal steaming. <laughs> so I think that in my casual Slack message to my colleague, like, hey, maybe you might be interested in this, I think that I set that all off. But I don't know for sure. I will have to go look now because I wasn't expecting, I wasn't imagining, I wasn't prepared to talk to you about that, so I'll have to check. But I am like 90, I mean, I would like, I would like, Buy, like bet you a few beers at the rendezvous that that is the case, and we'll we'll check. I get a good discount there, so I'll take that bet. But <laughs> you don't you don't have to prove it; you just have to believe it. Tim might not have been the only person who brought a skater to a punk rock show, but he believes he was. I'm. I think I'm a journalist. I have to. I, I'm going to say right here that you are not going to be held to this factually. Anyway, but the funny thing about it is that. It relates to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, because absolutely, when I ran that feature, um, one of the things that I got them to talk about was the whole vaginal steaming um, sort of phenomenon. And, you know, they talked about how they really defend the practice, and I think I think her editor compared it to um, – she said something like, I don't see what the big – she said something to the effect of it's like what's the big deal it's not like we're telling people to buy guns you know like 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 you know and and that was one of the what was one of the lines in the story that we all knew was going to be one of those little parts that gets reblogged in a really tiny post a million other places you know often publications that probably don't often pick up fast company stories like entertainment sites or whatever and so um, it's just so it's so funny that like what it will travel. It's often these like little little trivia, trivial things in some ways um, will really be the thing that gets the most attention. So anyway, it's not quite the same as the marriage of punk and skater culture. No, it's the marriage of of steam and genitalia, more or less. I, I mean, I think I still don't quite understand the ultra. The sad thing is, is I still don't quite understand the ultraviolet part, which probably makes me a really bad reporter. I don't think we ever quite answered that question. Well, you didn't claim to be a science reporter. One, one, one last like career success, not necessarily fame thing. So you, your your life has taken these these turns away from creative writing. What in a fantasy world? not fantasy, or in a fantasy-slash-reality world, what would you be doing in five years from now? The old five-year question. What will you be doing? I mean, I think... I don't know exactly what I'll be doing in five years, but I think that 
question is a little terrifying. <laughs> but Sorry. It's all right. But I think, but I'm at this place now where I, I'm not trying to get anywhere else in my career. Like I'm not trying to, I don't want to be the editor in chief of anything. I don't, I don't really want to go any higher. You know, I just, I'm more fixated now on, um, I'm able to be more fixated now on here are a couple projects as a journalist I really want to pursue in the next few years and I know what they are and they're like very time consuming projects. And the other thing I've been doing is um, I've been trying to sort of um, bring back my other secret life as a like a fiction writer and as a poet, you know, and so there's two things have happened. Like the other couple months ago, I um, I was online and I came across these little videos called material studies that the poet Clara Donato makes. And I just got so excited about them. I just loved them so much. And so I ended up emailing her out of the blue and being like, can I come talk to you about your videos? And so she and I met her about a week ago and she was showing me some of them, and she, she's really fixated with food and plating food, and so she was showing me some of the f- meals she's plated, and one of them had um, some bok choy down the middle, and I was joking it was a bok choy bridge. And at the end of the conversation, we were talking about exactly what we're talking about now, and she was joking that by like me like interviewing her about her about her like poetic videos. I was building a bok choy bridge between my old life and my new life. And I think that's what I'm doing now. And you know, the other thing is that I have been working in really small pieces on my novel this year. And next year I'm hoping to take some book leave, which is one of the reasons I really like working here, so I can actually go give more dedicated time to my book. And, and then I've also just been, like just like you found this sort of, even though it's obviously real work, like you find a somewhat achievable way to start doing something creative again. I've just been writing like these little haikus, you know, which like it's not like you just like spit them out, but like it's like an achievable form. So like even on a day where I didn't end up spending a lot of time on my book, like on the subway, I might, you know, in a 45 minute ride, I might, I might write a haiku. Do you share them with the world? I've been putting them on Facebook, but I think the algorithm doesn't like them very much because other things I post, it seems like they get more comments or no one likes my haikus. So they don't <laughs> like, what are the two is happening? They don't get like a ton of um, reaction from my friends, but it's just like, a, it's just a convenient place for me to put them, I guess. Hey everyone, Jamie cutting in here because at this point, Anjali and I went off on a, little uh, nostalgia trip talking about friends from school and how lovely it is in New England this time of year and stuff that I think interests us more than it interests the general public. And then she ran out of time for us to talk. So this is my makeshift transition to our goodbye, which you'll hear now. Really nice talking to you. I'm sorry I'm not a very focused interview. No, I, I love that I can go any, any way at all. So thanks a, thanks a lot. It was really fun. All right. Take Good care. Luck. Bye. You can find Anjali's work by Googling her name, A-N-J-A-L-I-M-U-L-L-A-N-Y, or looking for, it, for her at fastcompany.com. She's also on Twitter sometimes at Anjali Milani. 
As always, please do all the things I always ask you to do to support us and go to 15minutesjamieberger.com for all the episodes and a nice little post about how you can help support this podcast with money and coming up either next week or the week after it's tina antolini of radio legend this is 15 minutes i'm jamie burger